Welcome to A Frank Conversation, and this week we're with Paul Cheatham from Sedulo, um, a financial services business that uh, are based in Manchester, Leeds and London, hopefully in other cities in the not-too-distant future. Welcome, Paul. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Uh, and this is uh, you on the other side of the microphone because I've been on your podcast a couple of times and I know that uh, that's something you've been doing regularly now. The, I'm, uh, the I'm looking forward to this. I've not <laughs> been on this side for a bit. I think I prefer this side to, to yours. So see how it goes. Yeah. Let me ask you about the podcast. How yeah. did that come about? To be honest, um, I'm not quite sure how it actually came about. It's the same as anything. I wake up in the night and come up with ideas. And I think I'd... Um, there was one day I'd got three, I think it was like three clients that had come through. One from like, one was from the world of sport. One was off the TV. One was a great business. And I remember thinking, I remember pinching myself to a degree thinking, fucking hell, you know, we're 11 years old now in April. But, and this was about a year ago. And I remember thinking, geez, I, I never thought when I was setting this up, I'd have this sort of the, the influence of the clients, if you like, that we were signing. So then I thought I'd just open it up to bring them on a podcast. So just to share um, the stories or just so people can see what the kind of Sajulo community is. Um, so yeah, we just started to do that. And then a book came out of it on the back of it. And uh, I've enjoyed doing them to be honest. Yeah, yeah. And what's the podcast called again, if people want to find it on uh, podcast is taking care of business. I don't know if it's the right name. It was, it was a bit of a clever name uh, that we came up with because a lot of it is about taking care of yourself. If I'm mm. honest, uh, and the business b- beyond that and after that. So, but I think even with a book, I think people look at it and think, oh, there's a business podcast when the reality of it is, it's a sort of, well, it's a mindset podcast. So yes, we've had business leaders on Pete Cowgill, JD Sports, Sanjay Vadera, Fragrant Shop, but then we've had uh, Andy Grant, who's from Liverpool, Bootle, who got blown up in Afghanistan. So we've had uh, Richard McCannon, who's Mum Wilma was the first victim of the Yorkshire Ripper. So we've had some that are just non-business uh, focused at all. And then some media just mix it up a little bit. But what, what I've found about them all is there's a common human being theme, whether or not they're a victim or, or should I say they've, they, you know, they've been in a tragic circumstances or whether they're just trying to get a business off the ground or whether they're trying to be a musician or a sports person or whatever it is. We've all got the same problems. It's the same yeah. things we've got to overcome. Mm. Um, in, and so there's a common theme that runs through them all. So that's the podcast anyway. Yeah, yeah. It's well, I've listened to quite a few of them and it's well worth a listen. So yeah, if you are looking for a new podcast to motivate you, that's certainly one worth having a, a listen to. Um, when we last spoke on your podcast, um, we spoke about um, the general election and more specifically, what I want to get into today is one of the points that we raised was about this idea that, you know, all business people and entrepreneurs and business owners are greedy bastards, basically. Yeah. And therefore, you know, the idea that you can have billionaires and multimillionaires isn't somehow uh, an abhorrent thing uh, to have. And you know, we, we reflected on the fact that lots of those people um, actually give literally yeah. millions, billions of pounds um, to good causes. Um, but of course, we're not all multimillionaires in the mm. business community. And nevertheless, I think what we've seen uh, a significant increase in over the past probably five or six years is the SME community actually coming together, collaborating often um, to 
look at the community they're operating in, the business world that they live in, um, and society generally, and say, what can we do to help? Mm. And I know you're a great believer of Sedulo actually working and engaging with the communities yeah. that you're in and then giving something back. Yeah. I think, the, first of all, we've got to be... Um, We've, social, we've got to be careful with social media. We'll probably talk about that. You know, it's obviously a, a very topical at the moment, but if you're not careful, you just, you, you kind of, social media really does point at the bad in people and it focuses on that. And if you're not, if you're not careful, you think the human being, the human race are just a bunch of evil, selfish, greedy fuckers. That's what you think. That's what you see. That's what you get. It doesn't help when Jeremy Corbyn kind of leads that charge, if you ask me. Um, but, and, and, and actually what, what you realize is people are not really like that. So we talk about general, we've got clients. We'll talk a little bit about Sedulo and community for me in a second, but almost every client we work with, at what, regardless of their degree of success, want to give back. It's very rarely, if at all, where I've seen a client build up and amass some wealth and think nobody's getting their hands on this, it's all mine. It just doesn't work like that. I don't think human beings for a start are built like that. You know, I think human beings are built to look after themselves first. And as soon as they've done that, it's how can we, how can we create a ripple effect that allows us to look after other people? And I don't think we should forget that. I think social at the moment is um, you, you're making us look like we're, we're guilty constantly of not caring. And, and, and of course, you look at the richest and you look at the most wealthiest and you look at the most successful and you say, they're the worst for it. But actually, if you peel the layer back, you probably find they do the most. So that's where I am from a generalist perspective. From mine, again, it was, what did I set up Sajulo for? You know, I was a working class lad, as you know, and I wanted to earn more money. End of story. That's what it was. As everybody who listens to this podcast will identify with, there was a time where 20 grand a year was millions. And you, you just wanted to earn 20 grand or 25 or whatever your goal was, you wanted to earn that. Mine was 25 grand a year. I wanted by the age of 25 to earn 25 grand a year. Don't ask me why, but that's what it was. And that felt like any, you know, a, a huge amount of money to me uh, at the time. And then you get to 25. And then you want, you, you're okay for two paydays and then you want to earn 30. And then you want to get to 30 and then you want to earn 40. And that never, ever, ever stops. So when you're in a business, of course, the numbers can get much bigger than that. But the reality is that principle applies. I remember just thinking, I can't wait for this to be a million pound business. I think I dwell on it for five minutes. Seriously, it was not. And then it was like, how do we become a two million business? And then how do we become a five million business? And you just constantly move. So if you're going to measure yourself in success and whether you're successful or not, if you start putting numbers to it, you're going to fail. And I know people who have got billions or have businesses that turn over billions and they still can't get that. They still can't get the fact that one billion is now not enough. It's got to be two billion. It's got to be five billion. And those people internally are never going to be successful because 10 billion comes 11. That's how crazy it is. That's how crazy it is. So for me, it went pretty early on in my business journey. I realized the numbers I was hitting because of the drive I had was creating no self-satisfaction. So 
Then I had to look inside and think, where does it come from for me? And I'll come on to the sigillo as a whole in a bit, because then it, it moves on to, actually, how do I make everybody in this business satisfied? But for me, it was, okay, we're hitting numbers um, and I'm not satisfied and I'm not happy and I don't feel successful. So then I started in the early days, again, we started to do whatever we could. And that might have been buying a table at an event. It might have been, you know, when Comic Relief comes around doing something, it might have been baking cakes from Macmillan. It was all the stuff you could afford to do um, to make a tiny difference. And then as you get bigger, you'd, you're able to do more. And actually what, you re- what I realized, and I'm not on my own, is the more I could do, the more satisfied, more satisfied I became. And um, I would say up until we got to about 50 staff, it really revolved around me, maybe. And, you know, for right or wrong reasons, it was about how good I felt creating and giving back uh, in the communities we exist in. That was up to about 56, seven. Then I thought, it's a little bit selfish. I'm on the board of a, 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 I'm chair of a charity called Once Upon a Smile. Um, We did a lot for them. I don't know why, but kids was always to me. A big thing, it was always, I always felt for the kids where they perhaps didn't have a choice. There's other things that where, you know, adults have a choice, other, you know, charities and so on. But I felt with kids, we just got to do as much as we can for kids because they're just fucking stuck with, you're stuck with what you're given, really. And then I realized 50, 60 staff, actually, this is all revolving around me. Where do we go from here? That moved on. We're 160 staff soon. We are about to do Liverpool. As you said uh, earlier, we are about to do Liverpool any time now. We'll be 160 staff. Then it got to, so it got to a point where I thought, now I've got to open this out to what makes our staff tick. What, what do they feel strongly about? So we started to open it up. So it becomes less about me and more about the staff. And um, then we got to a point where as you grow a business, the culture, changes and you have to change with the size. We've gone from two of us to 160 in just short of 11 years. You have to keep everybody on board. If you have a mission statement that says, we want to be the best advisors in the world or in the UK or in Manchester, whatever it is, let's say we have out of 160 staff, 80 people who who are advising. So if I say I want to be the best advisor in the UK, front-facing staff go, okay, he wants me to build more and give a great service. They know where they stand. But what about those in the background that are doing, they might be doing the admin, they might be doing the money laundering support, they might be doing the IT, they might be doing whatever it is, centralised stuff. How do they fit into that? So I decided we'd actually flip it on its head and actually we would exist for our community. Now that doesn't mean we're not a commercial entity, we are, but our mission, the statement of our uh, of our businesses to give back and to create positive change in the communities who exist. That is our statement, not to be the best accountant in the world or IFA or advisor or wealth manager or da da da. It's to uh, create positive change in the communities that we exist. And we will shortly exist in Leeds, Liverpool, Manchester and London. And as a result of doing that, everybody in the business can do their bit. So 160 people can have a purpose and fit into our purpose and our goal, that's how we've changed it. So that's how our, our, our purpose has evolved. Uh, it's evolved because of me. It's evolved because of my lack of satisfaction with numbers. It's evolved because I realise I want to create a culture where everybody can play their part in the goal. And the other thing is, 
for me, on a personal perspective, I've lost faith in politicians. I've lost faith in politics. And I think, and I've also, social media again, I'm seeing people who do very little in the community have a lot to say. Now, I'm a pretty outspoken individual. So I realise if I've got a lot to say, I should be doing a lot. And then I feel like I've got a platform to say what I feel. If you're doing fuck all, I think you should keep your mouth shut. I'll be honest with you, I do. I really do believe that. I'm quite strong about it. And I've got mates on Facebook that constantly have got something to say about Tories, Labour, Brexit, Remain, and they're going to do nothing about it. And I've got a lot to say about all the subjects as well, but I kind of do it as a from a base of, I don't know, credibility, if it's just for my own self-credibility, where if I've got something to say, I'm going to do something about it, if I can. That's a good approach to life, I'd have thought. Well, why not? And I think we can't rely on the politicians anymore. And why should we anyway? Mm. You know, I think we've got to be, we've got to be part of the change we want in society. If we believe that the lowest common denominator in society, the poorest people in society need help, you vote, you know, I'll be honest with you. If you think that your vote makes a huge difference, you might disagree with this. I think you're deluded. I think there's people like vote Labour who think you're a, you're a twat if you vote Tory. Even if you're a Tory and you do loads of stuff in the community. And I don't. <laughs> and, I, and I can vote Labour or can vote Tory just so we're, so we're clear about that. And this time I didn't vote. And people have said, well, if you don't vote, you haven't got a say. And I say, that's bollocks. Mm. And why does having a vote give you a, a license to say something? I think if you do stuff, if you try and create change, if you try and create improvement, then you've got the ability to have a say. So that's my platform to have a say as opposed to doing a vote. Because if, 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 if like me this time, I couldn't vote either of them, why should I vote either of them? So I didn't. My vote was not to vote. <laughs> yeah. So I think we've got to be part of the change, Frank, if I'm honest with you. I think um, society's got to stop going on uh, social media and spending and putting five posts up a day on Brexit Remain, Tory or Labour, general elections or whatever, society, I think they've got to start doing stuff. You know, if half the people on my Facebook, in Manchester in particular, these are all friends, right? So <laughs> these are all friends. But if half the people spent half the time they did posting about a political party, our region would be a better place, mm. a far better place. That's what I think people should be doing, spending the time. There you go. Okay. That's a good perspective. I mean, I, you know, I'm very politically active. And so, you know, I obviously involve and engage with politicians because I think they can make a difference. But I do think that one of the reasons business has stepped up over the past decade is a direct result of an austerity agenda that was pursued by first the coalition government and, and then continue to be pursued by the Conservatives. And of course, what that led to inevitably was poorer public services mm -hmm. and an increase in the sort of very visible challenges that some individuals can chase, whether that be children, whether that be homeless. Homelessness is massive, isn't it, now yeah. in terms of people who mobilise to try and resolve that issue yeah. and that challenge. Uh, and then a whole host of other things. And I think if, you know, if there's any good come out of austerity, and I've always been one that's been sceptical about that as an approach, 
to our economy, if I'm honest. And and actually, I think a lot of chickens are coming home to roost now. Um, But if there was any good, it was that actually people who did have the wherewithal, it's not always cash, often it's resource. doesn't have to be money that you're giving to to charities or to good causes. Um, Then it was raising awareness of people that are big group of the population out there who perhaps aren't as fortunate and do need to be helped. I think another thing that we've seen an explosion of is, is food banks. Yeah. You know, and the number of times that, that I'll take a shopping bag or, you know, high performance by Mrs's company, they, they have a food bank collection on a, on a regular basis. Lots of businesses do. Yeah. So I think all of that sort of consciousness raising in a sense was as a result of, Austerity, whether it would have happened anyway, because we've already seen, I think prior to that, um, people talking about corporate social responsibility. And then the point that you made really, that if you've got a big team of people who want to engage and get involved, then it becomes part of your recruitment and retention strategy, doesn't it? Massive for the culture. I mean, we actually have a chartboard Friday. So we've We've got a chalkboard Friday where every week somebody from the uh, from the team has to stand in front of the chalkboard and do a five minute video on what they've delivered that week in the community. They could be jumping out of a plane, they could have baked cakes, they could have done something. But we 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 kind of put that in as well to measure whether or not because again people can talk about we do this in society, we're part of the community, we do all these things. But how do you hold yourself accountable for that? So the way we hold ourselves internally accountable is every week, somebody in the organization has to step up and say, this week I'm doing the chalkboard Friday slot and this is what I've done in the community. So it means at least 52 things a year are going to happen where we improve the communities we're in. And the buzz that we kind of get from doing that, I mean, the best day of the year for me, I don't know if you've seen this, but we do a toy appeal, a children's toy appeal. And I'm telling you now, it's the best day of the year. It's better than any uh, targets we hit or, you know, we're very target driven business. And, you know, we're not, it's not a fluffy business, what, what I'm running, by the way, you know, where it's all communities, a very, very um, serious target driven business. But the best day of the year by far is when we invite and we invite social workers from London, Liverpool, uh, London, Leeds and Manchester and then Liverpool will add to that this year, where the kids are getting nothing. And we put, Santa sacks to two, I think 268 kids we did this year. And they're all bespoke Santa sacks, 10, 11, 12 presents. You know, it's a proper Christmas day for them. And we do a reverse grotto. So we hold an event at ours where the social workers come in, all my staff bring the kids and um, they all bring the sack with them. And then the kid gives it to Father Christmas rather than takes. So there's a bit of a moral lesson in there. Do you know what I mean? And, but I'm telling you now, by far, it's the best bonding. Um, I don't know, it's quite, it takes a lot of organisation now. It's three or four weeks of hard graft, really, wrapping, I think it was three and a half thousand presents we got this time. But anyway, it's by far the best bonding that we do in the whole year and it brings everybody together. Like I say, I think we come back to what I said before, human beings, whether they're employees, whether they're management, whether they're owners, I think in the end, they all want to do good and we shouldn't forget that. And actually as business leaders, we should try and find ways to not just encourage that, but kind of um, facilitate it. And uh, that's what we do. And um, I think austerity's made it, 
Austerity is a funny one, isn't it? It's, um, we've talked about this a lot. The problem, if you ask me, it, with politics, we're kind of moving across politics and, uh, and culture and uh, it's kind of blending into one here. But big problem with, with politicians right now for me and why I've lost faith is I believe they do things for votes. They do things for votes. You know, if I was a politician, I don't, I'd get nowhere. Because I think I'd say the truth. And um, the worry with that is if you're not left or right, if you're not red or blue, actually, I think the truth's somewhere in the middle, as in all, all cases and in all sort of circumstances, the truth is usually somewhere towards the centre. And that's where I think the pol pol political landscape lies too. But you kind of have to say, I'm Brexit, I'm Remain. You know, I never once, I never see the Labour government say, it's fucking brilliant what the Tories have done here, there, and there. But by the way, they've got this, this, and that wrong. I never see a Tory government say, we've just seen the Labour manifesto and that, that, and that's phenomenal. We agree with it wholeheartedly. But I tell you what, they've got this wrong. Why? It doesn't make sense to me. So I, I think I've lost faith in the politicians wanting to do what's right for the people and actually just want to win votes. Um, and so, yeah, uh, austerity... As, as I don't know, like you say, it's given people a social conscience and uh, I think it's just got to start with people. And I don't know why there's not a party that just comes through the middle and takes, could argue, I could argue Tony Blair was that. I voted for a Tony Blair, leaving the Iraq war aside. I think he did a good job. You speak to some Labour people. I mean, he was the most successful. You'll know this more than me. I think he was the most successful Labour yeah. leader by a country mile. Yeah. And there's some Labour people can't stand him. <laughs> He's up there with Thatcher, I think, in some <laughs> Labour people's eyes. So uh, I don't get that, but, you know, that's what we're dealing with. So I think politics is in is is at a crossroads um, because people are starting to see through the nonsense Corbyn didn't get in because his um, agenda if you ask me, was unachievable and people aren't thick and they've seen that. And I think you said that on my podcast. Um, I think we need a people's party and I'd love to do one. I'd love to do one, to be honest. It'd be fantastic. I mean, I've got, not got enough time on my hands, but as I say, I'm not sure. You're only get, young, Paul. I'm not sure I'd get any votes, mate, because you've got to kind of, you've kind of got to be extremist rather than truthful. And then you always, Corbyn, if you like, on this election was all about spend, spend, spend. Actually, Tories are all about spend, spend, spend. And, and we've discussed this, I think, on my podcast and whenever we've had a chat in general. It's not all about, um, it's certainly not about money. It takes a strong leader. Oh, we'll see what happens with Boris Johnson. I don't know. But it takes a really strong leader to point out and create change. And the problem with a lot of our public um, sector is it's still doing what it did. You know, if I want to get an appointment at the doctor's tomorrow, I have to ring from our fate. I have to ring from our fate. So everything else that you're in a period probably where change through technology has never been so rapid and we're scared. I think we're scared to change. And that for me was a big letdown for Corbyn um, because he was just, you know, for me, constantly banging on about millionaires and billionaires, as you said before, now we need to get more money from them. Uh, and now we feel like, if, if, in fact, it's almost their fault. He almost put it across like it was their fault 
turned into a rant, mix, hasn't it? <laughs> this is a rant, not a podcast. But he, he, he kind of put it across where it's turned into their fault. And I don't, he actually gone run full circle. I don't believe that um, it's the fault of millionaires and billionaires, many whom have self-made, you know, and are just people like me, like you, who've earned a few quid and, um, and, and then I've have a conscience. I don't label it this, what, what's it called? Company socialist, but I, corporate I, I, social I, I responsibility. Don't know what it is. It's just yeah. for me. It's a, it's having a human conscience, yeah. conscience of wanting to do good. So, yeah. <laughs> well, Liverpool are organising as the international business festival. Past as as sort of being transformed into this good business festival in October, and that's very much focused on um, not just given to charity, given to community, but also how we treat the environment, how we are more socially aware, generally speaking, I think is is the point that they're trying to get across. And I think that's a positive thing. Uh, you know, who's going to argue against that in a sense? Um, I hope it doesn't become um, one of these sort of occasions where it's, it's a, it, it does become fluffy as an occasion because actually, you know, I think of the businesses that, do most out in the community that I work with. Uh, and it's people like yourself, it's people like Bruntwood. Um, there's a great company in Lancashire called Recycling Lives, whose whole business is based on doing good, actually. But, you know, all of those those three companies, and there's, there's loads more I could mention, um, very, very commercial focused. And I think we're in danger, if we're not careful, of actually taking this agenda and moving it to a place where, well, actually, if you're earning X amount and you're not given Y, then you're a bad business. Yeah. And it can't get to that kind of, because as I say, in, in your place, you know, it's a great example. Um, you're not going to your members of your team saying, well, you're going to have to give a tenner a week every week for this, this, and this. But you are saying to them, if you want to have the opportunity of giving some of your time, then we'll give you that opportunity. And that is so much more important in so many aspects of the sort of community work that we want to see businesses getting involved in. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, one thing's things have got to be authentic, haven't they? You've mm. got to be, you've got to want to do it. It's got to be from the heart. And I think, I, don't, I think business people get a hard time. I really do. It's like, you know, you, we talked about this on my podcast, you know, all the sort of loopholes that being a business owner, you used to get your tax breaks, if you like, they're gone, they're gone. You know, he'll probably get rid of entrepreneurs relief for the next one. That's the last one standing. So it's a lot of pressure. You know, everybody always sees the Alan Sugars when you think of business. What they don't see is the people who are turning over a million quid, two million quid, running in overdraft, personal guaranteed against the house. They might be getting a wage of 30, 40 grand a year. Some of these people, it's a tough gig. Everybody just sees the, the most successful ones. So we've got to be very careful what pressure we put on business owners, if you ask me. You know, I would like to just think, I don't want telling that I've got to have a social con. I've got to be a decent person. I don't want telling that. There's a time and a place where I'll be able to do more, perhaps, than I can at other times. We should respect that. If you're getting a business off the ground, you haven't got time to be thinking about social responsibility. 
you haven't, you know, and and then you get to a certain size and then it gets bad again because, you know, it goes in waves and, and troughs businesses. Go, you have ups and downs. So you get to a certain size and it all goes crap again. The pressure piles on again. You know, sometimes arguably the earliest parts was I, was, I felt under a lot less pressure than what I did when I'm paying 160 peoples or helping contribute to 160 households, for example. So I think we have to be careful of fluffing it all up and making people do things as opposed to naturally ex- giving respect to to business owners, to businesses, to employees and, and, and to the population in general that I think wants to help when it can. You know, we can't always just keep digging deep, like you say. We hit a trigger the other, point, the other month where I didn't even know, but we have to give 3% of our salaries to apprentices. I didn't even know about that rule, but it is what it is, you know. Um, but along the way, as, as we're growing, it seems, you know, we have to pay corporation tax now quarterly. It used to be. So there's constantly things the government have put in as you get bigger to keep piling the pressure on you. We've got to be careful. We just don't keep piling that much pressure. Um, where, like you say, it's all uh, legislative. And, and that's just my thoughts on it. My thoughts on it of all the people from the community of people I work with and the client base we've got, they all want to do something. It can't always be because you're forced to. Because it's already a tough job running and owning a business. And I think that's a great point that you're making, that if we're not careful, the whole agenda around what a good business looks like becomes skewered. And so, as you say, the people who are out there um, employing 20 people and not necessarily doing loads in the wider community because they're just busy running around trying to keep that business head above water. going. Yeah. Uh, or even let, you know, 10 people, it doesn't really yeah. matter the size yeah. of the business. If they start to feel you know, we, we're not getting any credit for this. What, what's the point almost? You, you've got, you know, a government now that's saying, right, we've got Brexit done. Well, a long yeah. way to go really, but they're saying we've got Brexit done. So we're now going to reestablish this great enterprise nation that we've had. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm not quite sure that we've ever had that, to yeah. be fair, um, unless you go back to the days of the empire and all the sort of things yeah. that went on there. Um, but if you start to have that as your agenda, that, you know, everybody's got a business in them, again, not a statement I'd agree with, but, yeah. you know, that's the sort of narrative that's being trotted out by some. But then on the other hand, you're saying, well, actually, if you're a businessman or a businesswoman and you've got a turnover of a million, let's say, yeah, uh, and you're not doing this, this and this, then you're not a good business. That's the, there is a danger, isn't yeah. there? And, and actually a lot of the loopholes that are now being introduced, um, I think will increasingly put people off setting their own business up yeah. because the pressures are just going to be too great and the reward's not enough. Yeah. 100%. I don't think we've ever been as, as, as I say, I don't think we've ever been as socially responsible as we have. And like you said before, that might be austerity, but even just personally now, I'm not talking about business owners, but I remember when I got three bins about five years ago and I thought, fuck you now, I've got a blue bin, I've got a brown bin. I was p- completely pissed off for about three weeks, um, <laughs> you know, because you just want to shove it all in a bin, don't you? <laughs> yeah. But now 
It's like I walk around and I think you can't put that in the uh, black bin. That's not needs recycling. Yeah. You know, yeah. I think so. I do believe that we give ourselves a hard time as a kind of um, as a being, if you like, as a. And I, I, I think we've never been as socially responsible. And uh, I, 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 I also believe business owners have picked up a lot of the slack in the last ten years, um, and maybe and quite rightly, you know, to to a degree. Um, it's very firm at the moment. The Tory approach to um, to business owners, you know, they used to be arguably the party for the business owner. I'm not sure they are anymore. I'm not sure there is one because I don't think Labour are from the last um, uh, manifesto, but I don't think Tories are either. Um, constantly moving, tightening the news, tightening your nuts, basically. And it does get to a point where you think, oh, Canel, it's, um, you've got to give some people a break. You've got to give, if you want people to be entrepreneurial, like you said, there's got to be breaks in there. And uh, I'm not sure we've got them at the moment. I'm not moaning about that, by the way, because I look at people in a much worse position than me. And um, I, you, you don't like to see it. Um, but again, I think there's that balance between making sure people are doing enough, but not breaking everybody's balls, who's already getting the balls broken. Not every business is successful, is it? Let's be honest. And there's a lot of people that work so hard for a general wage. Some of them just getting a normal wage. Actually, a lot of them could leave their job and get a better job on a better wage. That's, that's, a, mm. uh, that's just a fact for a number of businesses we work with. They could leave that job and get paid a lot more money with a lot less stress. Um, so we don't want to be too harsh on them. As I say, I think we got a, we human human beings. I think are uh, have never been more sort of proactive in helping. Well, let's nurture that, and to all the businesses that genuinely want to help, let's let's have events like what you've just said. Let's see what other people are doing. Let's not put it all down to money, like you say. It could be time. You've got to give you. you, you how are they going to measure that though? You know, if I give two members of staff. Monday off to go and count coins or five members of staff to go and count coins in the Trafford Centre. How do it, how do it, how does that be accounted for? You know, I might lose 700 quid a day charge out rate. So three and a half grand, it actually cost me, but send five people to go and collect coins for a charity. But we do, but it doesn't get logged in my turnover that, does it? It doesn't get logged in my costs. So it's difficult when you get so legislative, I think. I think it's also about trying to find things that, you can genuinely make a difference in. So, you know, with the scale that you're at now, uh, a toy collection makes a massive difference, doesn't it? Mm. Uh, we do that, you know, apart from the fact that half of them would want to take the, the toys home with them, like yeah. Keras or yeah, producer. Yeah, yeah. Um, you're not going to collect for that number of kids. And yeah. so it feel a bit like a damn squib. And, and that's why I think collaboration across the SME market's been good. But I'll tell you one of the things that, that we've got involved in this, this year um, we do women in business awards annually. Mm -hmm. Uh, and so, you know, we've always said, look, what this does is it champions women. It's good role models. It's this, this, and that. Um, and yeah, it does all that hopefully gives female entrepreneurs, business owners, people who are involved in business from the female community, a bit of a boost and a bit of acknowledgement. So that's all good, but it sort of stops there in a sense. 
lot of noise about it. And I'm sure the award winners go off and, and do some good stuff with the fact that they've been successful on the day, which is great. Um, but just coincidentally, um, because my 12-year-old daughter in September started high school, you do the rounds, you know, of all the schools that potentially they yeah. could go to. And to cut a very long story short, we went to a school in Liverpool. It's not in the most salubrious location. It's in the Dingle, uh, I think, location-wise. Um, and it's called Archbishop Blanche, and it's an all-girls school. And the head teacher stood up and just gave like this amazing speech about what the school's ethos was, what its culture, what its culture was, what it expected of the children. Um, but mo- most importantly, you know, the line was, "We don't care what your background is. Your aspiration, our aspiration for your child is like up here. You know, it's one hundred percent." And it was just such a motivational speech. So when we came to do the Women in Business Awards this year, I contacted the teacher, the head teacher, and said, we'd like to engage with you in some way. And it's basically come to the conclusion where they're going to come along on the day with some of their sixth formers. That'll be a nice experience for them. But more importantly, we're going to get some entrepreneurs, not just female entrepreneurs, men as well, to go in the school and talk to the kids about potential careers and what drives them and the challenges. Now, I think from our perspective, that's as good as some of the other stuff that you see, as you say, all over social media, loads of news stories about, which is all great. But actually from our point of view, and in terms of what we're trying to achieve as a business organisation, and that is create more entrepreneurs going forward, for us, that, that just made sense and it was a good fit. 100%. And I think that's what, um, what I said earlier was about when you start engaging the staff, they've all got different goals. You know, we've got people that are, are driven by equality and homosexuality. Great. Let's fucking do something, you know, because it means something to three or one or five of, of, of our staff or 10 or 20 or whatever it is. I think women, you know, or uh, uh, females, empowering females. One of the things we, we're doing as well is um, we're creating this sedulo in schools. So my old school contacted me about a year ago and said, we're skint. Um, we've seen you doing okay. Can you buy us some kit? So we said, yeah. Then it was like, oh, we've got this part of the school that's decrepit and broken. We've got no... Um, We've got no cash. What do you think you could do? So we created a sedulo. We actually created a coffee shop, a library, not a boring library, you know, a bit like coffee shop, internal uh, garden with table tennis. We created a reward room um, and we opened it with one of my clients who's a, a recording artist. It was a great day, but I decided let's start doing more in schools, just like what you've just said there. So we actually just, we have ambassadors in each city. And they tend to do motivational talks, inspirational talks internally to, to our staff or to um, some of our clients. So because we've got so many of them now, we're doing Sajulo in schools where once a month we commit to one of our ambassadors, if you like, going out into the, into the schools. And they're all schools of what my staff have attended. So it's going to be pretty cool when Daryl, who's my tax manager, who's 60 odds, not been back at his school for, what, 45 years, he's going to ring them up and say, hey, I've got whoever it might be, you know, um, coming down to give such a, uh, give an inspirational talk. And I'd like to give back to my school. 
And we'll follow him around with a camera and he'll go back to his school 45 years on. And it'll be pretty cool because again, I think that thing of giving back's got to, there's got to be some fun to it as well. Do you know, that's why I don't like coming back to what you said before, not to force it home. It's got to be something like, I don't want to pay more taxes. I'll be telling, I'm telling you now, because I don't believe it'll go to the right. I don't believe it'll solve the problem. So I don't want to be told that I've got to pay money back to the community because I believe the same ethos will apply. It's got to be like, it's got to be fun. It's got to mean something to someone. So yeah, coming back to your point, we, we're doing exactly the same as you. We're going back. So we're creating like a round robin of schools. And I've just said to all the staff, look, it's not just about, if you're not careful, I've put Sajulu in my school because that means something to me. It doesn't mean anything to anybody else. Does it? So how do we now? So they're able now to put their school forward. So Julo in schools, and we've only just launched it, but we'll commit to, it might be we buy a sports kit every month. It might be for that school. We'll, you know, as I say, we'll send out a, uh, one of our tend to be media or sports people on our ambassadors. So they tend to be famous. So kids love that. Um, and, and send them out. And that's our Sajulo in schools program. And that just came about of me sat at home one night thinking, well, we got one of my clients to open it up. It was great for that school. But what about everybody else's school? You know what I mean? Yeah, so yeah. again, but I do think coming back, just repeat myself there, but I feel like it's got to mean something mm. to someone in the organization. And then how much fun can you have with it? That's a great point. Yeah. Right. We're going to have a short break. Yep. And then uh, when we come back, We've gone to one of your other pet subjects, obviously, social media. Brilliant. Hi, my name's Mark Jones and I am Head of Business Support for Downtown and Business here in Liverpool. I just want to talk to you about a few events we've got coming up over the next few weeks. The 6th of March, we've got our Women in Business Awards at the Crown Plaza, celebrating the wonderful work that they do in our city. Then it's back to the restaurant bar and grill for a glass of fizz or two. 19th of March, we've got our Downtown Social held at the Amazing Dash on Victoria Street. We're looking at hosting a Downtown Social quite regularly, and these are chances for our members, new members, and potential members to meet up in a relaxed atmosphere, socialise, network, and have a few drinks. And these events are always very popular. The 26th of March, we're launching the highly anticipated Liverpool Property Club. This will be at the brilliant restaurant Bar and Grill. This event has received a huge amount of interest. And if you would like to attend this or any of our fantastic events, feel free to get in touch and I can provide you with more details. You can reach me on mark.jones at downtownandbusiness.com or give me a call in the office on 0151 556. 1897. We are also uh, heading up the ERDF project. We're one of the delivery partners for Liverpool, where you as a business, an SME or a startup can receive free business support. So please get in touch with us and I'll be happy to give you more information. Welcome back to a frank conversation with uh, Paul Cheatham from Sedulo. Um, we haven't really talked a lot about the company. I just said oh, financial management services. So tell us a bit about Sedulo before we get on to the hot topic of, uh, of this part of the programme, which is going to be social media. Yeah, so set it up 11 years ago. I, I'm an accountant. Some people don't believe me, but I am. Um, I set it up and I'd been used to being an accountant internally within a business. Um, and that business was very successful when I was, uh, I did a sports science degree actually and ended up as an accountant. 
So there's a bit, I don't know how that happened to be fair, but I, I actually was working for a guy who became very successful very quickly and depended fairly heavily on me to deliver, I don't know, number strategy, record things, project what was going to happen when he changed his business. So I was very hands-on basically. Did a f- three or four years with him. Then I went to work for an accounts firm and that's quite different. A lot of the accounts firms you'll find are just making sure you complain. You know, they'll send you tax return and you do. And I hated that. Um, did three or four years of it and then just thought I would set up a business that was um, that would do effectively internal accountancy stuff, but externally for people that can't afford an FD. And that was it. So set it up. And that was, as I say, 11 years ago. We do everything now. So we work with fast growing businesses in the main. Um, we we strategize with them. We have accountants. We have tax advisors. We have um, corporate finance. We do a lot of investment. We have a wealth management team. So we do pensions, investments, um, property. I have a property club. So we buy long-term leases. So our properties with leases like Starbucks and that kind of thing. So we effectively just become the back office for people. And they're either business owners or they're off to TV or playing football or whatever. So we've got uh, quite a few in the sport and media. And that's us really in a nutshell. That's what we do. I mean, I've been to lots of accountancy firms over the years. Yeah. There's none quite like Sadulo, is there? I mean, if you were to pick an accountancy firm that fits best with downtown, you, you would say it's you guys because you're a bit edgy. You know, you, you spend an awful lot of time and attention in terms of your office environment. You know, you've got a bar in the, uh, in the, the offices in Manchester. Yeah. I think in Leeds as well. Yes. Yeah, same sort of setup there. Isn't yeah, it? yeah. Yeah. Um, so it's quite a, it's a very modern feel yeah. to your business and you've clearly thought an awful lot about how you're going to approach business and how really you're going to maybe shake up and be a bit of a disruptor in the accountancy mm-hmm. world. Yeah. I mean, the environment's key. We're talking about mental health in a minute, but, um, I feel like it's a pressurized job what we do. There's a lot of pressure. There's a lot of hours. And particularly as businesses have become 24 seven, they want to speak to their finance advisor or their accountant 24 seven. So we're on call weekends and evenings in the main for our staff. So first thing was, how do we create a space that's feels almost Zen-like, you know, how do you create a space where in that pressure you're able to have an environment that, and if you, you obviously you come into our offices, it's a bit like a hotel lobby style. It's got a bar. We've got rooftop bars. We've got a reggae bar on the rooftop. You know, we've got a great Gatsby bar in Leeds. We've got kind of a New York style bar in Manchester and many other things, you know. Um, but the, the whole plan really is to create a space that you can come and work in that just takes you away from that white desk, you know, ceiling tiles, blue carpet, brown desk, you know, uh, and just create a space that at least alleviates some of the pressure and makes it place where you feel maybe inspired, but at least somewhere that even de-stresses you. So a lot of the things that we've put in are about, you know, we light candles. So there's a scent in there. It's dimly lit. There's booze where you can get a bit of space on your own. That's one of the reasons it, it was done. And then I just think, again, this word authenticity will keep coming up. I just came up with the idea, and this is before we worked, to have to create a community for our business owners to all work from. Why why go to Starbucks and have a coffee? Why not just come work out of Sajulo, which is a bit like a hotel stroke coffee shop. Uh, it serves alcohol, but you know, not many people come in and 
you have people come in and have a beer on a Thursday at four or five o'clock or a glass of wine, maybe on a Friday, late afternoon. But, you know, there won't be anybody coming in and having a beer on a Monday or Tuesday or Wednesday. Um, they can do, but they just don't, mm. you know. Um, but it created a place where footfall came. Our, um, our clients will use it for board meetings. Then we started to put events on, you know, so all different types of events. Sky Sports have been there. Google, Amazon have done stuff or people from there. Uh, so we just use it as a space, get footfall. But in the main, it was created as, as a space that I would like to work in. Mm. If I want to just de-stress, move away from my anxiety uh, and just take some time to myself, I can do that. So, so that's us as a guest, as a disruptor. It's, we haven't done anything amazing. Um, but five years ago, nobody was doing it. We're getting caught up now. If you go to, even if you go to EY, KPMG, they've all got fantastic offices with booth areas and bars and they're all doing it. But coming back to what we talked about earlier, why are they doing it? Well, I was doing it because it felt natural to create that space. I feel like a lot of people are doing it now because they have to, because PwC have done it, so KPMG must do it. Or we did it just because it felt like the right thing to do. So we've got to keep finding what the next, I don't know, the next disruptive thing is in what's obviously a very traditional (laughs) service-based environment. Now, again, I know because I've, read your book and obviously we've spoke as mates yeah. about lots of different things, but mental health mm-hmm. and anxiety is something that you're acutely aware of because, you know, it's something that you're challenged with from time to time. Mm-hmm. You do get anxious in certain circumstances. And I think one of the great things from talking to you is that, you know, you've come up with, with ways in which you manage that. Mm-hmm. But again, I think from what you were saying earlier about, you know, all the noise on social media, you're acutely aware of those outside pressures, um, whether it be on business, whether it be on individuals. And of course, this week we've um, seen suicide of Caroline Flack and mm-hmm. some of that has been related to uh, social media trolling as well. Um, so first off, let's, let's just drill in a little into, you know, what, good mental health looks like as far as you're concerned? And what are the sort of things that, that get Paul Cheatham through the weeks, the months uh, of challenge that, that obviously is that any business owner you have? Yeah. First of all, it's, um, it's like an epidemic, isn't it, at the moment? And I was discussing this the other day, why is it? I think the opportunity that exists for us all nowadays, it's never been, there's never been more vast. If you was born, if you was my dad and you was born in 1945, <clears throat> you was encouraged to get a job. And my dad was a lorry driver and he did that until he was 70. And he never even thought for one minute he could be anything more than that. That was kind of how earlier generations grew up. If you was a miner, you, 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 you know, you was mining from 17, 18 until, you know, until you no longer could. And I think with that, be careful what you wish for. I say this all the time at the moment because there's never been more opportunity, but there's a cost. And the price you pay for that is the, the kind of stress and anxiety of wanting and do better in your life. I mean, that, I wouldn't swap my anxiety for my dad's life. My dad doesn't get my anxiety and that's fine, but... Let me be honest, until 19, until my dad was probably 45, 50, 40 odd, he never left the country. You know, he, he lived 
a decent life within his means, you know. Um, but he, he wasn't well-traveled. He didn't do, he just didn't do all the things I've gone on and done, right? Because he didn't have access to do that. But if you've got the ability to do that, there's always going to be a downside. And the downside now is you, the, the kind of uh, pressure we're all under. And then you wrap social media around that. And then everybody's got the ability to compare themselves with others. That creates more pressure. And then you've got trolls. And I've been victim of trolls. And maybe we'll come on to that in a little bit, how I kind of handled that. So I think that's why there is an epidemic, by the way. And I think it is an epidemic because it's, you know, almost everybody now has got a level on a continuum of mental battle. Well, that's the first point. Mine, I never, mine, I never would have thought would have came about and I didn't really know what it was. And mine was about 12, 13 years ago and I was feeling a bit edgy, felt feeling a bit, um, I don't know, like, you know, like seeing blurred vision type stuff. I just thought, oh, left it and I was getting headaches. So these are the first things. It's about seeing signs. So the only word I could use is uneasy, stroke edgy. I didn't know what that was. Just didn't feel right. I would, I would play football. I was quite, I've always been a fit lad. You know, I'd play football. I'd start to feel my heart beating pretty quick. Start saying to the manager, I don't feel so good. Just take me off. He'd say, what's up? I'd say, I don't know, but I just don't feel that good. Um, and this went on anyway. And then just one day I was walking down the road and boom, I couldn't walk. Literally, I couldn't walk. I remember uh, I was in, in Stockport at a client. It was lunchtime. I'd gone to pick up a sandwich and I remember thinking it was as if, you know, like you've got an electric car and all of a sudden all the batteries gone out of the car. That's what it felt like. It was like, vroom, fucking hell, I can't move it. I'm dying. I thought, I thought I was having a heart attack. Thought I, was, I thought I was dying there. And then I managed, weirdly managed to get a newspaper and I bought, bought a newspaper and I sat on a bench and I just had that little energy. I put the newspaper above my head as if I was reading it and I fell asleep. I don't know how long for. And then I woke up. Fucking hell, what's just happened? I didn't have a clue what was going on. It's frightened. So scared was unbelievable. Anyway, I remember somehow getting to the car. I thought, I've got to go to my mum's. About 28. <laughs> I've got to go to my mum's. And weirdly, my mum works for me. She wasn't in that day. And, and I, I don't know why, but she wasn't. I got to my mum's and she wasn't. I remember getting into the house. I lay down and I said, I'm not. Right. I didn't live with my mum. And um, all of a sudden, my energy just started to come back. Now, that's the house I'd always grew up in. Don't know why, but I felt good when I got in there. Life started to come back into me. So that was my first experience of it. I didn't have a clue what it was. And I say for the next six months, I spent all my time, I spent, I don't know, every once a month I'd have to go to A&E, get put on an ECG. And the minute the doctor said everything's okay, Life would just drain back into me as quick as it left. So that was my, that was my early experience. And I thought, I'm mad. How, where does this go? You know, am I going to end up in a straight jacket? It wasn't really talked about as much 13 mm. years ago, you see, is what it was now. Yeah, yeah. So it felt really on my own. didn't know what to say. And I'm not the kind of guy people look at and think, Oh, I bet he's got a mental health issue. Yeah, yeah. I'm just not, you know, I don't talk that and I don't, yeah. don't come across that way, but that's not how it works, is it, mental health? So anyway, look, 
cut a long story short, I thought, I've got to get a grip of this. It's taking a grip of me. I just started to do things like, I did a lot of research and I think that's one of the things people should do. Um, I've never been a tablet taker. I don't even have paracetamol. I've watched, I watched my missus. I don't even know how many paracetamol she has now when she has an headache, but she started at one and, 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 you know, before you know it, one doesn't cut it anymore, does it? So it's two and then it's three. So I've always been a bit dubious about tablets, medication. I've always felt if you, if you have medication, um, you, you, you become immune to it and, and there might be a need one day when you really need that medication, you want it to kick in. So I've always had that in mind. So I thought I'm not going to go down that route. Um, <clears throat> you go to a doctor, so they'll say, oh, you've got anxiety, you've got depression. Here you go. I'm not saying don't do that. It's each to their own, but people come to me now because they know I speak about it and say, have you got five minutes? I've got this anxiety and I want to tell people. And I say, well, I've been working with you today. You've had five cups of coffee. Let's be realistic about this. You've had five fucking cups of coffee. <laughs> Caffeine's not good for anxiety. <laughs> right? So you've got to help yourself, haven't you? And I was quite strict with myself and said, right, what are the things I'm going to do? Well, first of all, read the signs. What are my signs? The headaches, the tingles, feeling uneasy. And it's little things like I'm more scared of heights when I'm, when there's an, an, a subconscious anxiety when, when, when I'm feeling okay. So I can see things and I've got to be in tune with your body. And I think as you get older, mm. you just naturally are, aren't you? Mm. So anyway, I did that. Then I thought, right, what are the things? Right, the first thing you can do is have two litres of water a day. If you're not going to have two litres of water a day, your body's chemically imbalanced. 70% water. If you're not going to feed it water and you're dehydrated, the chemical reactions in your body are not going to be what they should be. So just have two litres of water a day. It's not that hard, is it? That was the first one. The second one was caffeine's not good for anxiety. It's not good because it chemically releases cortisol and hormones like that makes you anxious. So don't have it. Now I have it if I feel all right. And I'll have one or two and by 10 o'clock I'm done. So I won't have caffeine from 10. Because the next most important thing you're going to have is sleep. I don't know what you're like and whether you have any of it, but, you know, hangovers for me, if you've got anxiety, hell. And um, half that, though, is late nights. Sleep is probably one of the most important things we're ever going to, you know, we can ever do. So how do you prepare for sleep? I prepare for sleep, you know. I kind of make sure that the, there's no lights in the room. I make a conscious effort to be on my phone, off my phone, should I say. You know, I do things half an hour before I go to bed to get me into sleep mode. That's another thing I do. There's no lights in our room. Um, any switches where, even tiny switches where there's TVs, I put towels over them, try and create the darkest space that I can. So sleep is very important for, for all mental uh, well-being, And a lack of sleep is what's going to be a major driver in, in many of it. So that was another thing. Um, alcohol. I like a beer as much as anyone. Um, but it's, it's, you know, detrimental to your mental well-being. Some people can have it and don't get hangovers. Some people get them and, you know, they have the beer fear. It's hell and that's me. So I keep alcohol to a minimum. Doesn't mean I don't have it because I do, because I like a beer. But I, I, I keep it to a minimum as often as I can. And I monitor what I drink within a degree. Um, meditation. So I, that, that's probably one of the most important things I'd do for somebody, uh, exercise I've always done. So I think that's important exercise I've always done. But one of the things, um, 
I went to a like chief execs class once. There was about 20 of us in this room. And this lady walked in, he was a speaker for the day. And she said, hands up who meditates. And there was like 20 of us, 19 people put their hand up except me. And I looked around the room and, and to be fair, everybody was probably over 55, 60. And I at the time was about 38. And I thought if the other 19 people are meditating and I'm the youngest and I'm not, there's got to be some merit in it. Um, she also weirdly said, you're an anxious guy, aren't you? And I said, how do you know that? She said, well, your head protrudes forward when you walk. You've got um, slight puffiness under your eyes, which actually is coming from your stomach. It's anxiety in your stomach will relate itself underneath your eyes. So you have a puffiness under your eyes. So I can tell you, anxious. she said, but by the way, you end up becoming um, the person you are and the energy you are more importantly. So, you know, when you're in the car sometimes and you're driving and you let them through, they don't fucking say thank you. <laughs> they never look happy, do they? Those people, when you look at them, they're miserable, aren't they? They've become miserable because they're fucking miserable, right? Their energy over years is the whingy, moany, ungrateful people. And in your face, you'll see over a period of years, if, if you look in the mirror now, honestly, if you're listening to this and you look in the mirror and you look miserable, you're miserable and you need to do something about it because your face is starting, you know, you're on, we're only energy, two billion molecules of energy at the end of the day. So she looked at me and said, you're anxious. You know, even she said, look at your side on posture, your head's moving forward. And that is because, and she measured my energy. She actually then said, watch this. So she measured my energy. I'm not sure what the, um, the apparatus was that she used, but she was able to go walk in front of me with energy measurement. And you could see these, they were like copper things and they were just moving like this. My energy was in front. She went behind me with the things and they just flopped to the floor. There was no energy. And if you, if you, if you look at the energy research of depression, it tends to be you, you've not letting go of things in the past. So your energy of your body will portray itself backwards and you can measure that. And it's something that's event that you can't get over. And that's where the depression is. Anxiety is something in the future that you're worrying about that might happen which by the way, never does. So if you write down what you're anxious about in a month, and if you do this exercise, you can write down in a month what you're anxious about and then review it. The thing that you was anxious about on the first didn't happen or the second or the third, or the, it just doesn't happen. Your mind just, your energy of your mind just portrays forward. What if, what if, what if? And as a result, you become anxious about a load of things that's just never going to happen. So. That's, that, that, that's my experience of anxiety. And weirdly, I managed it for about 13 years. And I did a podcast on how to manage it. And I wrote in my book on how to manage it. And I wouldn't say I had it beat. Um, and, that, and, and that's another good point. What I used to do for anybody out there who's battling it, you battle it. Mike Tyson had a coach called Customato. And uh, he used to say to Mike Tyson, you, you, your, mind's not your, your mind's not your friend, Frank. You need to fight it. So Mike Tyson's idea of managing his mind was to fight it every day. Oh, look where that got him. Seriously, look where that got him. But that's how I lived, fighting my mind every day. If you look at a Buddhist monk, what they do is they, and they seem to be quite peaceful chaps, <laughs> um, but if you look at them, what they do is they accept every thought. They accept the good thoughts and the bad thoughts and realize that actual reality of it is it's all temporary. So if you're having a bad thought, if you're scared of heights, if you're wondering, I might do this or I might do that, rather than 
fight yourself and beat yourself up about having a stupid thought or an intrusive thought, they call them, I think doctors call them. Actually, just let it go because that thought, like a cloud, will pass through one ear into the, into the brain and you've never, ever had a thought that's lasted forever, have you? No. Never. So it's going to go. The good thoughts are going to go and the bad thoughts are going to go. And what Buddhist monks do is just accept it all. They don't judge it. They just accept it. I've learned to do that and I've learned to philosophize a little bit more towards that than fighting my mind every day because it gets tiring. Um, so they're the things I do. And some great hints there and tips for people who, who do face those challenges. And still, I think, you know, as much as people say now, it's out there, people are talking about it. There's still lots of people there who don't talk about it. Yeah, and it's, it's, it's so difficult, right? Because what's, what's anxiety and what's stress? What's depression and what's upset? And I feel like a real problem we're about to have, or, or we might even be having is, you know, if, if an unfortunate incident happens in your life and you, you devastate it, that's, that's actually okay. Mm. Unfortunately in life, we're all going to deal with devastation and tragedy. And we've always have done, but we've never had, I don't know, a, a, a label for it. We've never had a, illness for it. It's been, your dog's died. Mm. You're upset. You've had your dog for 15 years. He's your, he's your partner. He's your, you know, he's been through this, that and the other with you. So, but, but you sometimes hear people like, oh, my dog's died. I'm depressed. Mm. Now I'm not a clinical on this. So this is just my opinion, by the way. But what I've found with anxiety is I'm anxious over nothing. I have pressure every day and I don't mind that. Mm. I have stress every day and I don't mind that. I think the, the true illnesses, if you like, is when you're depressed over nothing, you're down over nothing, you're hurt over nothing, or you're scared, tense, you know, worried and anxious over nothing. Mm. That to me is when you're starting to move more to a clinical side than, um, than general day-to-day -day issues, which we're all going to face. So I feel like it's difficult at the moment for people to open up. There's a lot more doing it, but we're going to have to, the next problem is opening up and labeling yourself yeah. as ill yeah. when actually you could have just suffered a tragedy or something that's gone wrong or you've lost your job or you're yeah. stressed over finances and da, da, da. I'm not sure it's anxiety so much yeah. that. That's the fucking truth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, this is, this, you, this, if you've lost your job and you write on the first, I've lost my job today <laughs> in your book, you've got a fucking reason to be stressed. Yeah. yeah. I, you know, if you go in, oh, I don't think this, this is going to happen. What if I lose my job? Mm. What if my business goes bust because of Brexit or da da da, or whatever it might be? That to me is so. It's difficult. Mm. I talk about it, but I'm also trying to be real about it. Mm. And that might what I've just said there might some people might even listen to that and think, well, he's not a fucking great advocate. <laughs> he's saying talk about it, but don't talk about <laughs> it, you know. But I do think there's a line where we've got to accept and we've got to be resilient. Mm. Um. And um, yeah, I think that's the next issue we're perhaps mm. going to have. That's a good point, I think. Um, social media you touched on and uh, mentioned Caroline Flack, but it's the, it's the latest in a long line of these cases where social media is being held up as the place that, you know, some of this anxiety and depression has led to. And you 
can't get any worse than suicide. You know, a forty-year-old woman who um, clearly had some issues sure. that she was facing, um, but not helped by social media. You mentioned that you had a, an experience with trolling, and and you managed that. Tell us about that. Yeah, it, it's, it was a funny one, really. I try and, and it, I try to be as as authentic as I possibly can. And the problem with social media is you're trying to build a brand. So if you own a business, you know, I get quite a lot of work through, uh, through my LinkedIn, through the podcast, through the book, but I have to put myself out there. Um, some people are not on it and I don't think they're any worse. You know, I was with one of our clients, uh, who's a, who's a rugby player over in Leeds he said, I don't go anywhere near it. And, they, and you know what? I still endorse things. I still are an ambassador of certain brands. It doesn't hold me back whatsoever, but I don't have the stress. I don't have the stress of it. Um, you look at someone like Piers Morgan. I look at the way he's fucking trolling Meghan Markle. It's a disgrace. He's a disgrace. Some things he's right on, but some things he's despicable on. And he's a bully. And he's using social media as a platform to bully. And he's somebody with 7 million influence. But then again, you've got people who've got a picture up of Superman on their thing. They've got 14 <laughs> followers and they're bullies. He gives everybody a platform to be a bully. But that's the problem with it. I got, um, I was away in um, Thailand last year, yeah, last year. And I was in, um, I was on Koh Samui and we was on Nikki Beach. And um, I'd gone away with a few couples and it was a great, scenery was amazing. And I, I'd been on the phone about four hours work. Something had happened at work. So I'd been on the phone four hours. So I put a message, a post out there. I put a post out there that showed a picture of the view and said, don't, I can't remember the exact post, but it was something like, don't judge, um, don't judge the post on, uh, on our, this part of this view on how I'm really feeling. You know, as a business owner today, I've done nothing but answer emails, be on the phone, be stressed out, da, 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 so on and so forth. Now that post was kind of put out for other business owners on a platform of business owners who are going through a situation where it, it doesn't look like the environment you're in. Which happens constantly. That was that was the reason to part of the post. What actually? So then I got on the flight. I was on the way back. When I landed, I was there was a barrage of um, there was a barrage of of messages on me. It was coming through from Twitter. Bang, 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 bang. So I opened it. It was like, "You dickhead! I hope you die!" You did. and I was like, "Geez, I was still on the plane." You know, when you switch your phone on the minute you land. I'm like. Oh my, what's all this? Die. This guy's going to get knocked out when I see him. It's all on my Twitter thinking, what's gone on there? <laughs> so as it turns out, what has happened is there's a parody account on Twitter called The State of LinkedIn. And all they do is take people's um, social posts off LinkedIn, put them onto Twitter and do a parody of about, you know, of about... What he, what they were saying, whoever runs that account was basically saying, I was showing off that day because I was on Koh Samui, Thailand, Nikki B. And so they kind of put a, I mean, there are some businessmen up there that say, I don't know. They, they take a picture of themselves going somewhere in the Bentley badges in there, you know? <laughs> yeah. So I do get what they're doing to a degree, but because they need to find content, they picked up mine, which was just a genuine post about almost a bit, be careful what you wish for again. You know, I'm sat here. It looks like paradise, but my mind's in turmoil. Yeah. That's the top and bottom of it. 
But they yeah. didn't take it as that. They put it that I was showing off that I was uh, in Nikki Beach in um, Koh Samui and I was showing off about the viewers. I mean, anyway, long story short, I'm then bombarded. You know, they've got 100, 200,000 followers, this account. I think it's a bit naughty because the people who, who are my, I guess, whatever, uh, followers on, on, on LinkedIn are business owners. So they mm. want business owner type real stuff. They've took it off a platform, put it on a different platform. Right. So I think it's a bit naughty. Context, it's fucking naughty yeah, what yeah. they do. Yeah. But nevertheless, I was bombarded with, and I first got it and it was like, it bothered me because, first of all, I pride myself as being somebody who says it as it is. Mm. And somebody who started with, you know, business on a credit card, just worked hard, try to give back, try to be real about things, talk about mental illness, try to say it's not all great being a business owner. Some people, not everybody's like that. You know, there are people out there who, who kind of, um, what's the word, um, dramatize or romance being a business owner. And that, that's hopefully not what I do. Uh, so it kind of got me in the stomach, really, that it was everything that I try not to be. But not only that, you know, I'm quite a proud guy and people saying they're going to knock me out on uh, on Twitter fucking get, gets my back up. <laughs> so, you know, in fact, saying it, you know, I think somebody put, what a scumbag, you know, this is a kind of worse person. Imagine being, imagine being the son of this guy or imagine being, you know, it's just constantly mm. personal. And it went on for about two, three days. My initial thought was to start getting on this, mm. but I, I had a client got a client who's a rapper actually. And, um, he's also, I mean, he could be a pro boxer all day long. And I've, I've always seen on it, he'll put a post up. He's got over a million followers, but there'll be people, if he puts a pit photo up of himself boxing, will say, I'll knock you out, dickhead. You know, this is a guy who, 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 not many people would knock out in the industry. <laughs> they just, it's just not going to happen. Uh, but, but when he gets it, I think, I wonder how he copes with that. Uh, and so I rang him up. I said, look, I've just got this dirty day. I mean, it's upset me. It's angered me. I'm frustrated. Actually, I've just got off a plane. And he was like, whatever you do, don't respond. Just do not respond because the minute you respond, they're on to you. He said, if not, they're going to put a post up next day, tomorrow and you'll be forgotten about. Anyway, so, so that was my, uh, and, and since, so I didn't put anything up. And uh, I just had to get all these abusive messages through. And um, yeah, that was that really. But it was um, it was difficult to cope with. And they've done it since. So the same people put me in a World Cup of dickheads. <laughs> and I was very fortunate because I went out in the first round. So they put my post up against someone else's who was obviously worse than mine and they got knocked out. So th that was thinking that when the World Cup was on uh, last year or the year before. But you just think, you know, why are people... Why would people do this? But, you know, so at that level, you know, when you talk about that, that celebrity level, problem you've got is when you've got Piers Morgan doing it, he's got real influence, that guy, and he takes no responsibility. Uh, I've noticed he doesn't bully Vinnie Jones. Have you noticed he doesn't, <laughs> bully, but he didn't, he doesn't bully him on there, on there? He doesn't bully people like Ronaldo. You know, he doesn't bully people like that. He picks on people. Um, I've unfollowed him now. So he used to be a bit 50-50 on him. I didn't mind some of his stuff. But yeah, he's a bully. And the fact is that anybody can now be allowed to be a bully. And if you are, let's talk, talking about Caroline Flack, clearly she's somebody who's got mental illness. Um, you, it doesn't take a lot to tip that person over the edge, does it? 
And there's no consequences for people doing that. I will say, you can just come off it, Frank. Mm. You can just come uh, off it. You know, I don't think David Beckham's on it, is he? When you get to a level, do you need to be? You know, so he's not on it. If, I'm sure if he went on it and he got a load of abuse, he just fucking come off it. <laughs> and I think it's a weird one. Why stay on it if you can get that triggered to the point where it can create real personal um, upset that you're struggling to cope with? But I noticed around Brexit, uh, I had to come off Facebook. I had to come off it. I was arguing around on the last general election with my best mates. And I don't mean having a bit of banter. I mean, getting upset. And I mean, I'd put a post up. I was trying to be impartial to a degree. So as I say, I didn't vote, but I was trying to be impartial. And with Brexit, I was a bit like, you know, turkeys are voting for Christmas here. We need to be a bit careful. And I just got a load of abuse off friends who were hell-bent off for whatever reason on leaving the EU. And I thought, what am I doing here? I'm putting a post up on our fake because I've got five minutes spare. But you need all day spare because everybody <laughs> comes back at you with their opinion. And um, somebody put up a great one the other day and they put, the problem with society now is nowadays you're able to say what you want without getting a punch in the mouth. Oh, yeah. And that is the truth of it. You'll say things, and, and we could all be guilty of this, you know, every one of us at some point has probably been guilty of saying something behind the screen. Mm. And uh, therefore it carries a bit more hurt. You know, I think it's sucking you in is what I'm saying. I'm not, I'm saying I might be guilty of this as well. Is that you're able to have a little bit of a defense mechanism to say whatever the hell you want without any consequences. You wouldn't go down to the pub and say it to certain people. That's a, that's a fact. Mm. You know what I mean? Yeah. So. Yeah. Keyboard warriors. Yeah. Yeah. And it's whether or not the people who run these platforms um, actually have a commitment to doing something about it. Because again, I, I saw one of our members actually, Dave Seed, I think made a great point this morning on Twitter saying that, you know, it would be the simplest thing in the world for people to have to go through a process where they've just got to identify themselves. Nothing else, right? Other than you are who you say you are. Mm -hmm. You can't set up anonymous accounts because an awful lot of this, you know, you, you say, you know, how many people have fucking photo of the egg? Mm. You know, well, I, I won't follow anyone who's got a photo of an egg because yeah. I'm not talking to an egg. Yes. Um, but then you get people who, as you say, put an avatar up of Superman or something mm. else that, mm. Um, so, you know, Dave's answer to, to part of this problem is only part of this problem because everyone knows Piers Morgan is, yeah? Yeah. Um, but it is, look, if it's an anonymous account, it's scrapped and it's banned. Now, I would have thought that's a relatively simple thing yeah. for the Facebooks and the Twitters. And, and you know, they always say that, oh, well, it's that big now. It's too difficult to man. But these guys are clever. Yeah. They've got the best people in the world yeah. working for them. They find ways in which they can reach us to advertise to us, to find out what our key characteristics are, to find out what we want to, what we want to buy, what yeah. we want to go and sit. And you're telling me they can't stop anonymous accounts. Yeah. It's all a little bit of a cop out, I think. Bare minimum that they should do, isn't it? Yeah. They should just be done. Yeah. It's, um, the, the irony about if you look at Facebook or something like that is it's gone from the, the idea of setting Facebook up and connecting everybody. Um, it was a fantastic idea. 
but he has given everybody a voice. And unfortunately, I don't know why, but we, we you put a post up. If, if you put a post up and you put something that's, you know, if I put a post about the toy appeal, five likes, six likes. If I put a post up about something, I don't know, that's got a negative connotation or it, all of a sudden it creates a conversation. And so the reality of it is, is I don't know how we police this, by the way. I don't know how we police this. And I don't know whether people are just starting to turn off. I, know, I don't know that if the numbers are still growing on Facebook, but my missus has come off it. I've got another mate who's come off it. I've got, there's plenty of people around me and I've moved it so that I don't get all the notifications. Yeah. It's become, you know, I think they might just ruin it for themselves, hopefully. Yeah. I think the, the, the big platforms might just ruin it for themselves now and it might force us to remove ourselves away from it. And if we do, you know, happy days, because I think the idea of me staying in contact with, you know, a mate in, that I met in, in Marbella 10 years ago and I, I see him once every few years, is a great concept, but they've even got rid of that. Now they only really put the people's um, information up that you know, for example, on Facebook, well, I already know you, Frank, so I don't need to see your stuff. If I want to know what you're up to, I can pick up the phone. It was the distant communication that I thought was a great um, tool. And they moved away from that. So I've I personally just fallen out with it a little bit. Um, Twitter are going because of the news. If I'm honest with you, it's a brilliant yeah. news platform. Yeah. I learn about everything first on the Twitter. If that's goals scored or tragic events like um, the other day, I learn about it on Twitter. So it is fantastic for news. Um, I don't know how you deal with just people being able to say what they want. It's a shame. Facebook, I think, is dying. Um, LinkedIn, I use a lot for business. It wins us a lot of work. I, I couldn't see me stopping doing that because- But I think LinkedIn has maintained that credibility of being the place you go for business. I think you- you almost become ridiculed if you start going on there and ranting about personal stuff yeah. and trying to bully. It's not really the platform for that. Yeah. And therefore, you know, there must be a culture around these things that you can grow and develop as a platform because LinkedIn have done it. Why, why would I, you know, and I'm using myself as, a, mm. as an example here, go on to Twitter and say, Everton was shite today, right? I haven't said that for a while since Carlo <laughs> came along. Um, but I wouldn't dream of going onto LinkedIn. Now I, you know, I get Twitter after a different audio, all that sort of thing. But nonetheless, there must be ways in which you create within your business model yeah. a way in which you do. People just say that's actually that that platform's not for me. And you know, I think sadly, Facebook and Twitter have fallen foul for you know. Basically, it's about volume, isn't it? Yeah. It's not about quality of debate or discussion. It's yeah. about as many as we can get. And, you know, that's their business model. Mm. And it's leading to, I think, people who do think about these things a bit more carefully taking a step back. I mean, I still use it mostly and um, throw a bit of stuff up there on a personal level, but mm. not very much now. Less and less. I haven't been on Facebook for years. Never really been into Facebook, to be honest. Um, but you're right, Paul. I think there is sign. There are signs now that people are starting to fall out of love with it. And you know, unfortunately, the Caroline Flack incident, because of who she is, 
gets all the publicity. And I get that. Mm. But how many people out there have either committed suicide, done themselves some harm, or just fallen into a bout of depression because of the nonsense that's going on on those social platforms? And therefore, you know, ultimately, I think it leads itself. 100%. Hundred percent, and and you've got this kind of you've got this social network, you've got this epidemic of people speaking about um, anxiety and depression. Perhaps mixing that up sometimes with just genuine life events, uh, and and the the two combined is what's we're creating a huge huge. I think we've got a huge problem. I don't know how we solve it. I don't know how we solve it, um, but it is a huge problem. I don't know, you know. There'll be what usually happen with an event like this is, you know, people are talking about the media. You know, the media have got something to answer for as well. Um, you know, probably, but people like the Sun have probably reined it in over the years. I think they've had to rein it in. I think they still talk a load of bullshit, but it's probably not as bad as what it used to be in the eighties and nineties because people started to drift away from them, and they're drifting away more from them. Um, I don't know. It's a, it's a funny one, mate. But having this day to day. It's like your mates, somebody was saying the other day, you just used to know your mate from, you know, playing footy with him or whatever it would be. You do, you'd have a common, there'd be some a commonality between you. And that's all you know. Now you know the ins and outs of what they eat, where they go, <laughs> who they support, you know, their political opinions. Do you really need to know that much about that many people? I'm not sure you do, but that's the, that's the work of the area we live in, I guess. And, uh, it's creating problems. I don't know how we solve it. No. Well, if we did, mate, we wouldn't be sat here doing this podcast, would oh, we? that's true. Sat in California somewhere. There you go. Advising people. Um, I want to end on a positive note. And, you know, I've um, been interested to watch what you've been up to over the last few years because it is a very, very different type of um, business model that you've got in your industry sector. And I like to think what we do here is, is different. Uh, as a business organization. Um, you mentioned earlier that, you know, lots of things that you did five years ago, um, people are sort of caught up and they're all doing that sort of thing. Yeah. We feel a little bit about that, like that sometimes. Um, and we're trying to think of, you know, well, what can we do that's, that continues to to see us out there and a bit disruptive? It gets harder, doesn't it? Mm. It does get harder. Yeah. Um, so, you know, where do you find your inspiration for those new ideas. And, and you know, if you got, I don't want you to share what those yeah. ideas might be. I don't want to give any secrets away. But, you know, are you confident that over the next period of time, Sadula will still, still be seen as, as edgy, different and a disruptor? Mm. Because it gets harder as you get bigger as well, yeah? It does get harder. I mean, it's funny. I was going, I went for a run the other day, so talking about living in the moment, what I've realised is, when you are living in the past or you're living in the future, you don't come up with good ideas. Um, I've realized that when I'm in, in, in that kind of meditation state, and what I mean by that is, I mean, I'll just stick a Google on. I think I forgot to say that before. It's not like I'm going to some place and, you know, pe- sometimes you can misconstrue what meditation is. It's just actually rechanneling your energy, central, centralizing it and living in the moment. And I've realized I come up with ideas when I'm asleep or if I go for a run. If I go for a run, there's always something when I'm not. So when I'm not trying to think about stuff, things come to me. Um, The more I find myself in that sort of centralized energy zone, 
one, feel less anxious, of course, and two, that brings about it more creative ideas. So that's when I find I'm at my best, if you like, on coming up with stuff. For me, I like it doing that because it's authentic and it's like I'm not pushing myself for innovation. I'm not pushing myself to be out there in front. I'm honest, I can see one, two, three years of things we're going to do that will be different to uh, what I think others are doing. Um, you know, it's, you can only ever really tinker with things because most things have already been done unless you've got something amazing. Um, we're just going to keep doing things that feel natural, that feel progressive. You've got to find when are you best at coming up with them ideas. And I know what mine are. So I put myself in that state as often as I can see what comes out of it. You know, um, I'm quite driven by, I'm quite excited about the times. Uh, I think the, the next few years are going to be interesting for business. I think they're going to be positive. I think he is going to spend a load of money. I think he's going to tax people more and spend some of it. That's what I think he'll do. So business-wise, that's going to be good. So um, yeah, I'm excited for, for, the, for that in, in general. For me, it's like, I've got an overall goal it is, it is to take it outside of the UK, what we've created. And um, we haven't created yet what I feel like we're going to do. So there's just so many more notches that I, I feel like we can go to. Uh, but I think the big thing about anything is just, it's got to be natural. And that's what I'm just going to maintain. If there isn't anything, don't force it. Some people are too busy watching what other people are doing and think, fuck, they've got a bar in their office. We need a bar in their office. Oh, they've got a newspaper. We Oh, they're doing a toy appeal. We need to, well, by the time they spend all that energy doing that. Um, and then I wonder how they execute it. You know, I, I see a lot of environments now where they've got a pool table in the office or they've got a table tennis table or they've got a fridge with beer in it. Is that really creating a culture? I don't think so. You know, it's just having a pool. Yeah. table. If you haven't got a culture that's seeping through, like the vision I talked before, the community, the purpose, believing it and doing it, implementing it, add to that and great sur surrounding an environment and other things. Mine is community-based. So the big thing for me is I, I, I want us to be a pillars of the society we're in, the communities we're in. And I think by doing that, we'll pick up more work because why wouldn't you want to work with people that are pillars of the society in which you're existing? You know, so that's mine. I think one of the big drivers for me, mate, is anxiety. And I know that um, if the business got to a point where I didn't have to think as much, and this is one of the big things we haven't mentioned yet, but anxiety tends to bring itself when things are going great. Mm. So what I've re realised about anxiety, and a client rang me the other day and said, look, I need to speak to you, Paul. And I was like, why? He said, my head's fucked. And I said, why? And he goes, well, I was just sat in Hong Kong then in like, you know, five-star hotel. And I thought, oh God, I've got nothing to worry about. So now I'm worried about my health. <laughs> and the reality of it is, yeah. I remember a time where he was completely and utterly on his, on his backside. He was on his backside as a business. And he, he was going bust. You know, his investors were encroaching on him. He's worried about his kids, his private school, and all the things that he had going on. And I, I genuinely worried for his life. Genuinely worried for his life. And I told him that when I spoke to him. But when you're like that, you've got nothing to do but fight. So arguably, you just come out fighting. That's why in the early days, I didn't feel as anxious in a way because you've just got to get the next client, pay the next bill, sort the next thing out, do this, do that, do this. You're full. 
actually, as you get older and your mind gets a little bit of time to think, if you've got an anxious nature, it'll start to default to find things to be worried about. And if it doesn't find them, if you can overcome them, it'll, it'll default to your health because that's one thing we'll never control. So that, so that for me is, I already know that's going to happen. I'm, as the business is getting bigger, I'm under less anxiety and stresses. So that frees my mind up to make them up. And uh, so I'm now setting goals for me, if you like, for the future of when we get to that point, what's going to drive me, what's going to fill my mind, what's going to keep me active mentally. And a lot of it is based around, we come right back to the start here. It's about how much of a legacy I could leave or how much change you can help implement in the community. And that will be the thing as well that differentiates us between what a lot of the other competitors, I guess, out there are doing. Brilliant. Last question, because I usually tweet this to you anyway. Um, you're a great reader of books. You've wrote a good book as well, um, which I enjoyed thoroughly. A um, couple of recommendations for people listening. Yeah, I've read... Um Sorry, I, I think I read um, Shoe Dog to you, didn't yeah, I? Yeah, Shoe Dog, you recommended. That's one of my best yeah, books. Yeah. And the reason why it's Excellent a great that. book is because it's a real reality to an overnight success, yeah, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. And you realise Nike is Our isn't producer, Keris, nodding there. I recommended it to her. You've read that as well. Yeah. So that's my favourite book, if you like, of somebody's life. Um, I really enjoyed that. The I've just, I think I recommended your legacy. Yes. Did you read, read it? That. Yeah. I loved that book. The All Blacks. Just yeah, loved it. book. Yeah. I, I, and there was things that I brought into my business as a result of that. Yeah. Things like um, when you're trying to create a culture, the kind of legacy. So we've, we've started introducing things on that. I thought that was a great book. If you're a business owner and you're trying to create a culture, this, the, every stone unturned is required. You can't just put, you know, sort of a pill table in your office and expect all your staff to love you and love working there. And I do think there's a lot of people at, at that at the moment. So legacy I loved, uh, shoe dog. And um, I'm just reading Elton John's book at the moment. I've nearly finished that one. Um, I liked that one from an advisor perspective. You know, he's a guy who, who was sort of misadvised over a period of time simply because he had to f surround himself with advisors who, who were yes men. And as a result, he got stung. They took a load of money off him and so on and so forth. So I'm reading that book at the moment. I'm trying to think what else. I read him. Um, Enough to do with a business book, but I read, oh, what's it called, George Orwell, Animal Farm. Oh, yeah. I read that not long ago. <laughs> I just thought it was interesting. Yeah. I don't read um, I don't read fictional stories, really. Everything I read is really autobiographies. Uh, Leading by Alex Ferguson's a great book. Yes. That's yeah. actually a really good yeah. book. Um, there's read loads the Barcelona Way? No. Uh, you'd, you'd enjoy that, Barcelona Way. Yeah. I can't remember the name of the author, but, um, you know, in terms of culture. Yeah. A little bit similar to the... The legacy book about the All Blacks, um, but a different type of culture being introduced. Uh, yeah, you, you'd enjoy that. I'm going to read that. What I think it was really has really got to me the legacy book, the All Blacks, and the reason being is I think people are too driven by um, numbers. Mm. Weirdly, coming from yeah. accounting, they're driven by we want to turn over one million, we want to be ten million, we want to be twenty million or whatever. And actually, if you look at the All Black, they just the All Blacks. They just started with we want better people. Let's start with behaviours. Let's start with better people better behaviours and results will come. And, um, and so it, it, it kind of had a profound effect on me that, and we've become a very results-based business, but it's behaviours first now. Um, and, that's, and I'm also carrying that through to our kind of advice, advisory work that we're doing with our clients.
that would be my go-to book at the moment. Okay. Good recommendation. Yeah. It's been great to speak to you Brilliant. again, Paul. Thank you very much for having Catch me Catch up again soon. Yeah. Thanks, mate. Take care. Cheers, mate.